The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this gener generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying, really this whole year, we've been studying the life of Jesus. But... Over the past few weeks, Jesus has been doing something um, that I think is, it's just ripe, it's just perfect for us um, at this time of season our country's in, our life's in. I think it's some of the most important lessons Jesus ever taught. Um, I think the, the, the implications of what Jesus has been teaching us over the past few weeks have ramifications and implications on every single thing, everything else in our life. Listen, what Jesus has been talking about the human heart, the problem in the human heart, it, it should affect the way we parent. It should affect how we love our neighbors. It should affect how we operate our businesses. It should affect how we function on, on Facebook when we hear terrible things in our world. It should, there should, the implications of what Jesus has been teaching us should shape the way we address those problems. It changes the way we relate to God. And what Jesus has ultimately been 
answering for us as he's been answering over and over and over, what's wrong with our world? What is wrong with our world? And in our society, when you ask that question, whoever's answering it nine times out of ten, maybe 99 times out of 100, what's wrong with our world? The answer is going to be this. Someone else. The answer is the impoverished. The answer is, so the poor, the answer is the undereducated, the answer is the liberal, the answer is the conservative, the answer is, it's always someone else. And what Jesus says is Jesus points the finger inside, not to himself. (laughs) Jesus is the only one who can point the finger out. And Jesus says the problem is, he's already said what? The human heart right? In chapter 7, he said, the human heart is the problem that all the issues, that all the the sins of our life flow out of. Now, if I could use systematic theology language, I would say that Jesus has been teaching us about the doctrine of sin. Now, I know many of us, we don't think we need to know about sin because we think we already know about sin. We might think it's an archaic idea. We don't need to talk about it. We're beyond it. But I think we're going to see today, and I think we've been seeing the past few weeks, that we're anything beyond it. The doctrine of sin is actually one of the greatest arguments for Christianity. It makes sense of the current state of our world, and, it, and as Jesus has been showing in the last few weeks, it makes sense of the current state of our feelings, of our affections, of our heart, of what's going on inside of us, why our identities can get so confused so easily. Now, I'm going to give you, to get us up to speed, I'm going to give us a quick overview because many of us have never even heard, have never heard this. So I'm going to give us a quick overview of what the Bible teaches about sin. Sin began in heaven when one of God's angels, whom he created as good and beautiful, desired more than what God gave him. An angel, Lucifer, was his name, was unsatisfied in his lot. He wanted more. He was created, but he wanted to be the creator. So he rallied these angels. He created this coup to kind of overthrow God and to take his throne. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, that did not go well for him. God cursed the angels. They're now known as the devil and demons and Jesus in, 840, in John 8.44 says this of the devil, that he has been a murderer from the beginning. Right? So he's had ill intentions from the get-go. But then God creates mankind, and he creates them good, very good in his own image. He created them with dignity, value, and worth. But mankind gets tempted and deceived by the devil, and they disobeyed God. Now, that might seem really simple. Sunday school lesson, something kids believe, we've outgrown that. I've had a college professor, you know, uh, we've outgrown that idea. But Adam and Eve really, if you get down to it, they did far more than just eat an apple. When they ate from the one tree that they were not allowed to eat from, what actually happened was a whole lot more sinister than just eating an apple. It was very akin to what we do in our own lives every single day. See, listen, the essence of man's first sin was just like Satan's sin. It was the fact that Adam opposed God. Adam stood against the will of God. Adam did not want God 
to determine the course of his life. He did not want to give up his rights over his life. He wanted his will. Adam ultimately wanted free will. He did not want to subject his will to the will of God. Okay? That's the first sin. It wasn't just, oh, look, there's a good-looking apple. Oh, man, I'm going to die for eating an apple. Right? That's a harsh consequence. It was the first sin was rebellion against the created order. Creation rises against the creator. It was a rebellion against God's um, authority. It was also, it was ultimately saying, I want to determine my own life. I want my will and not your will. Okay? So I think that is very pertinent to where we find ourselves in our own daily struggles with sin and also with our society. That we are people who claim to be autonomous. We get to determine the course of our own life. Right? This is the first sin. Adam and Eve rebelled from God. We do the same. Now, this should actually, this storyline, this narrative should sound pretty familiar to you. Uh, This storyline is pretty much the the narrative plot line of every single robot movie ever made. Okay? Okay? Man makes robots in his image. Robots rebel against their creators. Man destroys robots and typically destroys all of creation in the process, right? It usually goes something like that. Now, that narrative is pretty common. And from it we see, this is what we see. When creation rises against its creator, when creation rebels against its creator, it needs to be destroyed. That's what happens. The robots turn on the humans. Humans have no problem annihilating them, right? They don't go, oh, let's talk about this. Let's negotiate. Let's work this out. Maybe we can find some way to, you know, adopt them into our society. Typically, humans just wipe them out when the, rob- when the, robots, destroy- when the robots turn on them, right? But what's interesting, number one, we're not robots. I know the analogy breaks down. Uh, but two, that's not what God does here. God When creation rebels and rises up against God, God doesn't destroy Adam and Eve. On the contrary, instead of lashing out and annihilating them like he would be completely just and good to do, what God does is he promises to destroy the devil. He promises to destroy the devil, annihilate the devil, and fix them, heal them, and ultimately redeem them sometime in the future. He says it in Genesis like this, I'm going to step on the head of the serpent. Their rebellion does have consequences though. First, their sin brought death into the world. Okay? Death is not normal. We shouldn't get used to it. Anytime we see it on the news, it should grieve us. It's an anomaly. It's not meant for our world. That's why it feels so wrong. Right? It's a consequence of sin. God says, the soul that sins, it shall die. That's first. There's a consequence to sin and rebellion. But secondly, there's something else. This is how Job says it. Job says it like this. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean one? What's he saying? Adam and Eve are now not just under the consequence of sin, they're going to die, but they're now also polluted by sin. 
They're now unclean. They were now sinners in their heart, in their core, in their DNA. Sin had done internal damage. Their hearts, hear me now, this is the, this is the pervasiveness of sin. This is what it means to be a sinner. Their hearts were darkened. That means they loved and cherished and worshipped wrong things. Their intellects were darkened. They couldn't think clearly like they used to think. They had negative thoughts about themselves, about God. We see shame enter the world. We see them hiding from God. Why? Because their hearts have been bent in, their intellect has been darkened, and their wills have been bent towards their own um, self. It means their their self-will has been damaged. So they can't choose the good any longer. And what we see is Adam and Eve, they've got a consequence of sin. They've got pollution. Sin is pollution. And when Adam and Eve come together and they bear fruit and they have children, their children will also be affected by sin because a clean thing can't come out of an unclean one, right? And what we see when Adam and Eve do have kids is that the younger brother immediately, or not immediately, you know, right away they'll first first family relationship dynamic going on. Younger brother gets jealous of his older brother and what? Rises up and kills him. Now, where did that murder come from? Was it a lack of education? Was it poverty? Right? Where did that first murder come? That first murder came from the same place every murder since has come from, and that's the wickedness and the pollution of the sinful heart. came from the sinful heart of Cain, which came from the sinful heart of Adam, which came from the sin of Lucifer. And so it is today. These same things, two things are true about sin. Sin is pollution. It pollutes our heart. In Mark 7, Jesus said that the greatest human problem is found in our heart, the control center. When I, every time I use the word heart, I want us to not hear what our culture says about heart, right? It's just the feelings, right? The heart, biblically, is the entire control center. It's the mind, will, and the motions, okay? We don't just, you know, what the mind sees as good, the heart kind of chooses and the will kind of chooses to worship, okay? So you get everything involved. What the heart kind of desires and wants, the mind chooses as good, and the will follows it, right? There's this totality of the human person there. That means we desire things that we shouldn't, that aren't good for us. We think things that are wrong and we choose to pursue things that are not good for us physically or spiritually. How many, this is so simple, I mean, this is simple in some ways and it gets really dark and depraved, but how many of you have looked at yourself in the mirror and go, man, I really, I need to get off the carbs. I just, I really need to get off the carbs. I look at myself in the mirror, man, I just need to get off the carbs. And then soon as, right, that donut crosses, you're like, I love carbs. Like, I love carbs, right? Now, that's really simple, but that just shows the, the, the confusion we have in our desires. Like, we want to look really fit and maybe be really trim, and we say, okay, I, I need to lay off the carbs. Then we see the donut, and something within us says, 
No. I'd rather be fat and happy, actually. I'm going to eat that donut, right? Like, right? That's what a, now, that's a simple, funny kind of illustration. But the same goes for all the way down to being faithful to our spouse. Yes, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful forever. And then all of a sudden we get off here and we start fantasizing about secretaries. We start fantasizing about other women. Or we, start, we get into pornography. And eventually this leads us to an affair and other damaging things. See, what's going on? What's going the, We've been twisted inside. We've been polluted inside. But sin is also still an act of rebellion that deserves punishment. Sin is when we say to God, I want your place. I want your glory. I want you to serve my will and not the other way around. So in a sense, listen, sin is always the creation wanting the creator to bend his will to ours. Sin says, God, do this for me. And if you don't, you're not good. God, do this for me, and then I'll worship you. Sin is always the robots turning on human creation. And typically we see when that happens, robots get destroyed, but thankfully, though, God has a different plan. His plan isn't ultimate human destruction. It's human redemption. But in order to redeem mankind, God has to address these two aspects of sin. He has to address the punishment that sin deserves and he has to address the pollution that sin causes because a polluted person cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Sin can't be in the presence of God. So something has to happen to us, right? And we're all sinners, so we all deserve death. So that's got to be taken care of as well, our punishment. And today, Jesus is going to show us a glimpse of how he did that. How we handle both aspects here of sin, or these two aspects. And what he does is, before he tells us how he does it, he's going to give us another analogy for sin. So he said, sin is, your heart is the seat of your problems. Now he uses this an- another analogy, and he uses uh, the analogy of leaven. <clears throat> All right? Leaven. Now, what is leaven? Basically, leaven is yeast. And yeast is a... It's interesting, if you've ever made bread or you've ever made beer, um, you, yeast is this little packet. It just looks like these little bitty tiny, almost like seeds or like grains of sand. And you just put yeast into whatever you're doing and it changes whatever you're doing, okay? It, and what it does is it's it, yeast, even though it looks dead and dry, yeast is a living organism, okay? It's alive. And when you place it in your dough, Okay, if you place it in a little bit of dough, what that yeast does is it spreads rapidly through the dough and it eats up all the sugar, okay? This living organism spreads through the dough, it eats up all the sugar, and by eating up all the sugar, it releases carbon dioxide and alcohol, and the alcohol just gets evaporated in bread, but we capture it in beer, but in bread it gets evaporated, and the carbon dioxide, as it's left off, it gets caught by uh, the outside of the bread, and that causes that bread to rise, Right? So that's what leaven does. So Jesus here is saying, and listen to this, he's saying sin is like leaven. Now what does it mean? Now I love this. I was reading one of Tim Keller's sermons this week, and he, takes, he just makes things that are really complex, and he makes them very simple. Sin is like leaven. What does that mean? It does the same things leaven does. What is that? It's this. Look, 
Sin, just like leaven, it's unseen. It spreads fast. It eats up everything sweet in your life. And if left unchecked, it will ruin everything. And we're going to talk about all four of those things as we work through this. And I'm just going to let you know this morning, I'm not going to spend too much time in the first 10 verses. Um, We've already seen Jesus do something very similar. Uh, The common theme that he's talking about here in every little uh, vignette that we're talking about today is bread. It's interesting. He Somebody talks about bread, it brings an analogy to his mind. Somebody else talks about bread, he's going back and forth with this analogy of bread. And it's all about sin being like leaven. So um, let me just cover the first 10 verses really fast. Uh, Jesus is, this is the second time feeding a really large crowd in a miraculous manner. We've seen it before, but what we see is that, again, Jesus has compassion on people. This crowd isn't asking anything of Jesus, they're just there. They're hanging on his every word, and he's been teaching them for three days straight. They've been there without food, and Jesus knows they're hungry. So Jesus takes a few small fish and a few loaves of bread, seven loaves of bread, and he looks up to heaven, and he blesses the food, and he breaks it, and it miraculously multiplies, and everyone ate and was satisfied. These poor and pitiful people, more hungry for the words of Jesus than they were for their food, Jesus met their great need And he had great compassion on them. But then, here's the key of this whole text that we're going to be seeing today. Mark takes us immediately into a a different kind of encounter. Not one of humble, poor, pitiable people, but with the Pharisees. Look at verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, the Pharisees, if we remember, we got the Pharisees were the guys who were really concerned with the externals. They were the religious. They looked the part. Jesus called them hypocrites, act play actors, people that could look really religious on the outside, but inside they were still sinners and sinful. They knew the right way to act, right? They knew how to fake it. They were really good at looking religious and pious. But here's the thing, another thing about the Messiah, or about the the Pharisees. They thought they knew how the Messiah was going to come. They thought they had a handle on what the Messiah would look like when he got there. So when they approach Jesus, listen, they don't come humbly like the crowds. When they approach Jesus, they come arguing, they come demanding, they come seeking a sign from heaven to test him. And what's so ironic is the Pharisees have been witnessed to a guy's hand, a cripple's hand, be made new. They've, been witness- they've heard the stories of blind men getting their sight restored. They've, they've seen um, lepers cleansed. Now listen, this is key. They've seen all of these signs that point to his divinity, point to at least the fact that he's a miracle worker and he's a possible Messiah. But when they come to Jesus, this is what they're saying. What you've done isn't enough. I want you to do this now. 
I, I want you to prove from heaven you're the Messiah now. Do it now. What is that? Listen, that's the same thing Adam and Eve did. That's the same thing Lucifer did. What is it saying? God, if you are God, bend to my will. Do things my way. Prove it in my fashion. And look what Jesus does to him. Jesus, oh, we already read it. Jesus says, no. This is, Jesus looks at them. They demand a sign. He says, no. And he walks away. This generation seeks a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign. And he walks away. Now look at verse 15. Or 14, let's start at 14. So they, or first they get in a boat. They went out to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. This is kind of funny. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Jesus, just, Jesus has this huge miracle, multiplies the bread, plenty of leftovers. The disciples, they forget to bring bread. They've got one loaf between them. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay? So Jesus hears them arguing about bread. And he says, this is a great opportunity for an illustration. This is a great opportunity for another parable. Hey guys, the problem is the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And how do the disciples respond? <laughs> uh, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Right? So they don't get it. They, they completely miss, miss what's going on. Now, what is going on? Let's ask ourselves, what is going on? What is the leaven of the Pharisees? What is the leaven of Herod? And the first thing that really should get our attention is the fact that the Pharisees and Herod have nothing in common externally. Right? This is like me saying, beware of the leaven of the liberals and the conservatives. Beware of the leaven of the really moral, pious people and beware of the leaven of the really rebellious people. See? What's Jesus saying? Herod and the Pharisees, the Pharisees were monotheistic. They were very religious, right? They're worshiping one God. Herod had all kinds, he was, he was just a pagan, right? Anything that profited him. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of these two groups of people. And obviously the disciples miss it in the moment. But listen, what's he talking about? Leaven is yeast. Remember the first property of yeast is yeast is unseen. Listen, if you, if you take dough and you take dough that has yeast in it, by looking at them, you cannot tell a difference. You can't tell a difference. This dough has yeast. This dough does not have yeast. Yeast is unseen. You don't know until you bake it and the bread rises. Jesus is showing us sin most of the time is unseen. Why? Because it's internal. Sin isn't just the outward acts that can be seen. So as your child begins to manifest some of these sinful tendencies, if you only focus on the externals, you're missing the point. 
The child lies. Yes, that's a sin. Why does the child lie? Because the child has a sinful heart. Is this, maybe the child seeking approval, right? Maybe the child is proud. Maybe the child is jealous that there's something underneath the sin. See, sin is internal. It's invisible before you see the fruit and the external things. And if you always deal with the externals, you always deal with the fruit, you're never going to get to the core issues of what's going on here, the fact that we have a sinful heart that needs to be changed. Sin is primarily internal. It's in the thoughts. It's in the attitudes. It's in the beliefs. It's in the affections of our heart. And what this tells us is a person, and the Pharisees already have showed us this, a person could look incredibly moral on the outside, but internally still be polluted and be a sinner, be full of leaven, like Jesus is saying here. So what is this leaven? that makes the Pharisees and, the, and Herod the same or similar. What is that leaven? It's, it's simple. It's the leaven of unbelief. And unbelief is the opposite of faith. Now, how do we see that? What we see from both the Pharisees here, what do the Pharisees do? They demand a sign. Do it now. God, this will tell me that you love me. Right? If you love me, God, give me the girl. Right? Now listen, what's, what we're going to find out later, in the, later on in the book, Herod does the same thing. Herod brings Jesus before him and he demands a sign. Show me your, show me your God. Jesus says, nope. What's the same thing about these two people? Both of them demand signs which is the exact opposite of embracing Jesus Christ by faith. The Pharisees and Herod both wanted Jesus to do things their way. They didn't want to come to Jesus and see what he was already doing and accept him for who he was. They wanted him to prove it to them. They wanted special attention. Okay, Jesus, yeah, I saw what you did with the crowd. It was really cool what you did with all those poor, uneducated folks. But now prove it to me like this. It's the opposite of faith. Now, how many of us have done this, right? How many of us have done this? God, if you give me the, if, if you give me the girl, I'll give you everything. God, if you give me the job, I know you'll care. I know you care about me. You'll prove your love to me. How many times have we done this? When I was a kid, this is how terrible. When I was a kid, <laughs> I used to do this with the Nintendo. Old school. If, you, if you've never had a Nintendo, you don't know. Put the Nintendo in, doesn't work. Pull it out, blow on it, put it in, still doesn't work, you pray. Come on, God, if you're God, please make the Nintendo work. Sometimes it would. When it wouldn't, I'd get crazy. Those were, those were back in the day, those were remotes you could throw, right? You could throw those remotes, ping them off the TV, the glass on the TV is like four inches thick. They made them for little rebellious kids like me. Right? Now, what is that? Listen, it's, I'm joking, but that's not faith. And I think many of us in our day in and day out life, we approach God the same way. We say, God, this is how I know you'll love me. You heal my body. I know you care for me by doing this. Just take care of my kids. All I expect is my kids to never rebel. That's all I expect. Is that too much to ask? 
I practically, this is what we do. We say, God, prove it. God, prove that you love me. Prove that you care. Prove that you're sovereign. Prove, prove that you look out for your children. That's not faith. It's just like Lucifer. It's just like Adam. It's just like the robots demanding the creator to bend to the will of the creation. We want God's will to bend to our will. God, prove yourself to me. If you're really God, you will do things my way. Now listen, when I put it that way, hopefully, doesn't that seem just a little self-serving to you? Think about this. If God is God, and by that I mean he's the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-good, all-powerful, all-loving, uncreated creator, he created everything that is, could there possibly, maybe, be a small chance that he might know exactly what he's doing and his plan might be at odds with your plan. Now, for the believer, if you're a Christian, he promises that everything in your life is going to work out for your ultimate good. But that does not mean that everything in your life is going to be good, your idea of good. I took my kids yesterday to see um, Pixar's new movie, Inside Out. It was a cute movie about literally kind of like the control center of people and these little, these little characters inside of their, their characters' heads. And all the characters, one guy, you know, like they had the con- control center and you had one guy for anger and you had one girl, one, we had one person for joy and you had one person for sadness and you had one person for fear and you had one person for disgust. And they all kind of take turns driving this little girl's behavior right? She sees broccoli and disgust gets up to the control panels and pulls things, right? Pulls the levers. And anger and all these different things. And what's interesting is joy. Uh, joy is kind of the boss. Joy kind of runs things. And, and obviously joy wants what? Joy wants the little girl to be happy at all times. So one of the things that joy does is joy tries to keep sadness away from the control ta- panel, right? Joy tries sadness. I don't even know why you're here. None of us like you. Like, go away. And she tries to block sadness out from from any contact with the little girl. Long story short, um, this little girl starts having a meltdown and get really depressed and all these things going on. And they're still blocking sadness out. They don't know what's going on. And, And they check out one of her memories. And one of her memories was the saddest moment of her life. She missed a goal. She was a little hockey player. She missed a goal. She felt completely depressed, despondent, felt like a complete failure. And in that moment that she was utterly sad, her parents came alongside of her, sat down next to her, put their arms around her, told her they loved her. And then and ultimately later her team comes and gets her and, and, and tells her how great she is and, and that, that you know, they, they weren't depressed that she missed the goal. And what this movie shows in this little scene is that this moment of sadness becomes ultimately one of her greatest moments of joy. And to block sadness out was actually to keep true joy from, coming, from taking place, right? And how true is it in our life that sometimes the deepest, darkest, saddest experiences of our life, from those moments come the most beautiful, the most gracious experiences of love and joy and peace. And God knows this. God knows this better than we do. And if we come to God, 
like these Pharisees do, like Herod does, and say, I believe in you only if you protect me from sadness. I believe in you only if you help me in my career. I will put my faith in you only if you keep bad things from happening for me and my family. Jesus says that's leaven, that's sin. It's almost entirely internal. Nobody, people aren't going to see this as going on in your own heart. And if you're treating like this, I'll believe in you if you do this. You're never, you're never going to actually see him. Because the only way to see Jesus is through the eye of faith that comes by grace. And that's not faith. That's unbelief. And what we know ultimately is Jesus, when Jesus says, I'm not going to give him a sign, in Matthew 12, he actually says it a little different. He says, this only an adulterous and evil generation asks for such a sign. The only sign I'll give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. And so will I be in the heart of the earth for three days. What's he saying? Listen, Jesus is saying, you can only see me through grace. My death and resurrection will be the only sign that confirms my identity. It's the only sign anyone needs is my death and resurrection. I'm not going to prove myself to you. I've already done it. I lived a sinless life, endured an excruciating public crucifixion, and then rose from the dead to be seen by over 500 of my followers. That's all you need. You don't need any more proof. Now here's the trick. If you can answer that question, if you can say to yourself, do I believe that? Do I believe that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God? The Bible says you've been given, here, given the gift of faith. The gift of faith. It's not, nothing you earn, nothing you strive to get to. It's a gift of faith. You've been given the ability to see Jesus. Faith is first a gift of God given by grace. And that gift of grace, grace to really believe in Jesus, listen, that is what saves a person. When you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died in your place for your sins, you are eternally saved. No one or nothing can take that from you. Jesus says in John 10 that everyone the Father gives him, that he's never lost one of them. No one can pry you from his hand. Listen to John Newton, his hymn. I love this hymn. It says this, Sovereign grace has power alone to subdue a heart of stone. At the moment grace is felt, then the hardest heart will melt. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's what it means to be saved by Jesus. You receive faith as a gift. But what we're seeing here is faith is more than just a gift. Because leaven, indwelling sin, sin spreads so rapidly and spreads through everything that we need more than just faith as a gift. How do I know that? You say, Justin, <laughs> yeah, I believe it now. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe the gospel. It's easy to do it right here with the liturgy and the songs and the preaching and the people and the sacraments. But it's tomorrow and the next day that I get in trouble. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to show us here. Because sin is like leaven. Faith is more than just a gift. Faith is also a fight. Faith is a gift first, but then faith is a fight. 
We said this, sin is like leaven, it's unseen, it spreads fast, it eats up all the sweetness in your life, and if you don't deal with it quickly, it will completely ruin your life. Look at these apostles. They begun discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Listen, the disciples, they, they've already seen Jesus, right? They've, they've been, they left everything and, and followed him. But this problem isn't just an unbeliever and believer problem. This sin problem, this leaven, this unbelief problem is a problem that extends to even Jesus' closest followers, that they've been following him now for a couple years and they're still not seeing him clearly. See, sin is unseen and it spreads fast. It doesn't stay in one place. If you have unbelief in one area of your life, that unbelief won't just stay in the corner. It will spread to other areas of your life. I've witnessed this over and over. People come to Jesus, they embrace him by faith, and then they learn something that they don't like about Jesus. They learn that they need to give their money because Christ has given so much to them that they need to respond in the same way and give freely, and they say, no. And what they want to have happen is that unbelief to stay locked over in the money category of their life. I'm going to follow Jesus. I want the salvation thing, but the money thing, that's mine. Sin is like leaven. It won't stay there. What that is is greed in your heart, and that greed is going to seep into every other area of your life. Or lust. You, you can't just put it over in a corner and expect it to stay there. Sin is like leaven. It spreads fast. Now, what it, it also eats up all the sweetness in your life. That's what leaven does. It eats all the sugar. And that's what sin does. That's what unbelief does in our life. See, when, when we're asking for a sign, do you know how exhausting that would be if Jesus actually did it? All right, Jesus, all I need, all I need is you to clear this for me. Get me out of this ticket. That's all I need. And we're all worried. Oh, please, 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 please. And he does it. And the next time trouble comes, all right, Jesus, all I need, please, we're beggars. It's exhausting. It eats up all the joy of Christianity. All right, God, this is how I know you'll love me. Some of us are so desperate to know the love of God, a love not just once when you're a little kid and you went to church camp or the first few months that you came to Christ, but to know a love and a joy that sustains you every single day of your life. Do you know that joy and love is the motivation for the Christian? So if you lack love and you lack joy, then you're going to really find it difficult to obey Christ anytime. See, thinking, God, you've got to do this, to prove to me, it just eats up all this. It's unbelief. It just eats up all the sweetness. I'm always needing God to do something again, to do something again. Eats up all the joy and all the sweetness. The disciples here, I, guys, we really sometimes, if, if, it, if we couldn't see it, if we can't see our own heart, we really want to make fun of the disciples here. Okay. 
He multiplied fish and bread once, fed thousands of people. He multiplied fish and bread twice, fed more, several other thousands of people. He, he's raised the dead. He's healed people's mirac- miraculous several times. And they get in the boat and they have one loaf of bread and they're concerned about it. Right? That's kind of funny, isn't it? Because you think one, at least one of them would be like, Jesus, Big Mac, right? I need you to do your thing over here. Like, give them the bread, multiply, do your thing. But they don't do that. Why? Because unbelief, guys, it doesn't work logically. Unbelief gets down under all of our logic, under our intellect. And other people on the outside can look in and go, wait, wait, wait. I've watched God provide for you over and over and over and over in your life. Why are you freaking out right now? But unbelief doesn't work in that logical fashion. Unbelief causes us to freak out. It eats up all the sweetness, all the joy, all the happiness in our life. The disciples here, man, they're so much like us. They show us you can believe in Jesus. You can trust him for salvation. And yet you can still lose sight of him in your daily life. They have faith one moment, and then the next moment, their faith seems to have evaporated. And what does Jesus do? I love it. This, to me, Jesus gospels them in the moment. He presses them in the moment. What does he say? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Can't you see? Can't you hear? Do you not remember? Why does Jesus know that? Or why does Jesus ask that? Because they can't see it. They can't hear it. They've lost sight of him. They're next to him. They're in the boat with him. Proximity does not mean you have a grasp of Jesus. The heart's grasp, the eye of faith grasping on to Jesus. See this, and what's he showing us here? Faith is a gift, guys. If you believe in Christ, that's because the Spirit has given you this gift. This is a gift. But faith is not just a gift, And if you go through your life and you're just whistling while you're work, that's not the way faith works. Faith doesn't just say, come what may. Faith fights. What does it fight for? It fights to see Jesus. It fights to hear the words of Jesus. It fights to understand Jesus. It fights to remember Jesus every second of every day. This is the things that Jesus goes after. Can't you see? Can't you hear? Can't you understand? Can't you remember? This is what we need to be saying to one another. This is what we need to be saying to ourselves. Why am I acting this way? Can't I see? Can't I hear? Can't I understand? Can't I remember who Christ is? Faith is a gift of grace, but faith cannot sit back and say, come what may. I'm glad I got that salvation thing taken care of. Faith fights and clings to the promises of God. Faith reads, faith studies, faith prays, faith confesses and repents. Faith is not conformed to this world, but is renewed or transformed by the renewal of our minds. Faith is active. Faith fights. Now listen, don't get this confused. Faith is not a fight for approval or a fight to be made right with God or a fight to be forgiven. Faith is a fight to see Jesus as he is, 
at all times, to see him as our perfect and vicarious substitute who lived a perfect life and credited to us this righteousness, who died a sinless death to clear us of all charges that are against us. See, faith fights to believe that every second of every day, Jesus is enough. Jesus has taken care of sin as pollution. Jesus has taken care of the punishment that comes with sin. Jesus is enough. What I'm lacking in this moment is the sight to see Jesus, the ears to hear Jesus, the heart to believe Jesus. I need to see Jesus. Faith fights to see Jesus, not just as our substitute, but Jesus as our victor. Jesus conquered sin. He defeated sin. He cut the head off of sin. Faith fights to see Jesus as our substitute. He took our place. Faith fights to see Jesus as our exemplar. He is our example and how to live a life. John Newton said, the, man who's, the same man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he, he wrote that all unbelief, all our unbelief, comes in like a black cloud and hides Jesus from our eyes. That's what unbelief does. See, that's, that sin is leaven. That's our problem. Why aren't you growing as a believer? Why do you feel so lost during the week? It's unbelief. It's leaven. It's still in us. And Newton says... The prescription for this, for those who have already been converted, is a new conversion or a reconversion every single day. And by that, he does not mean you need to be resaved. That's an impossibility. He's saying the way we grow, the way we mature, the way we drive out the leaven of unbelief in our life is by seeing Jesus in the gospel as all we need every single moment of every single day. Seeing Jesus in in the gospel, as all we need every single moment of every single day. That's the fight of faith. Newton, he uses this term, he says, seeing Jesus through the glass of the gospel. And then lastly, as Keller said, yeast, leaven, if you don't root it out, it destroys everything. If you leave yeast, you put yeast in bread and you leave it on the uh, and you leave it on the table too long it eats up all the sweetness and it turns sour if you leave it long enough it completely sours and it's worthless and it just needs to be thrown out and the same is true with sin in our own hearts and if we don't put our faith in Christ to cover to pay for our sins to cleanse us and also to deal with the punishment of our sin, that sin that's inside of us will go bad. It is bad, but it will make our whole life go bad. It will ruin everything in our life. And ultimately, it will separate you for eternity from the God of all grace and love and kindness. As we look at this text, And we see Jesus say, sin is like leaven. It's invisible. It permeates everything. 
it sucks all the joy out of your life. And if left unchecked, it'll destroy everything. His remedy, God's remedy, is the grace of God. And the grace of God is like reverse leaven. It comes in eternally. It's internally, it spreads everywhere. It fills our life with sweetness and it leads to eternal life. But the price Jesus Christ had to pay to give us grace was the cross. Was the cross. And when we're looking at our society and we're looking at the wickedness of our heart, we need to avoid just oversimplification of all the stuff that we see in our society. Oh, they just did this, it'd be fine. It's way more complex than that. Sin is at work even in our hearts. Those of you who are the oldest and the strongest believers in this room could testify that you, you, you are probably more aware of your sinfulness now than the day you came to Christ. Because it's, sin is like leaven. And here's the deal. You can't unleaven bread. You can't do it. Once you put that little piece of dough that's been leavened and you put it in the whole dough, you can't undo it. It's done. See, human beings are incapable of solving their sin problem on their own. Only Christ can do it. Only God, our creator, can do it. And he did it. And we come this morning and we take the supper and we break unleavened bread. And this Jesus said, this is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. Jesus' body is unleavened. He never had original sin. He never was impure. He never was unclean. He never was polluted. He lived the perfect life. And then Jesus, it, we're, we're taking this unleavened bread and we're breaking it. Why? Because he was broken for our punishment. He was broken so we, we don't ultimately have to be broken. That we can be mended by the grace of God. Pray, Father, we do thank you for the story. We thank you for how you've saved us. Thank you for how different it is from all the stories that we create in our own mind, in our own world. And you didn't annihilate us. You redeemed us. And God, though it might not be the most encouraging thing all the time to know that we have this sinful alien presence within us. It does us good to know that the head has been cut off, that you've given us faith, this gift of faith, and you've given us this fight of faith that's empowered by the Spirit to see Jesus, to cling to Jesus, who is our victor, who is the, the one who has conquered sin. And one day, Father, this physical body that you've given us will be completely renewed without the leaven, without the presence of sin. And we say, come Lord Jesus, hasten the day. And Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit and the awareness of our own sin, the humility that that brings, but then the boldness and confidence knowing that Christ is at work redeeming us, sanctifying us, making us more and more like Jesus, that you would fill us with a boldness to step into the controversial, difficult um, situations in our workplace, in our society, in our families, to be agents of redemption in our culture, to preach the gospel to our culture.
Father, we'd resist the simplistic answers that our culture offers. And we'd be men and women who've been changed by the gospel of grace, who want to see our city changed by the only thing that can really change, bring lasting change and redemption, and that's the gospel. We thank you for this. Uh, We thank you for the body. We thank you for the blood. Father, I ask that you would produce repentance in our hearts now. We turn from our own unbelief. We'd embrace you by faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.